The idea was to kind of create elder care, to create day care programs, public works, you know, parks, and to help people have a job that was paid at a good a living wage, and every county resident would be guaranteed it. It was an experiment, and unfortunately when Lyndon Johnson left office and Richard Nixon came in, he eventually cut the program. That's kind of the conclusion they came to in suburbs, like, oh, we can't solve poverty by just training people. We actually have to provide them work, you know, the, the actual, you know, a demand, something for them to do. Hi, my name is uh, Tim Keough. I'm an assistant professor at Queensborough Community College, part of the uh, City University of New York. I just recently published a book in Levittown's Shadow, uh, and it is about kind of an unfamiliar topic, and that is uh, the suburban poor, in particular the suburban poor living in the post-war period, post-World War II, the 1940s through the 1970s. And it's a topic that's not very common because we tend to think of suburbs as being the site of the middle class, you know, the Levittowners and the people moving out from veterans moving out from the city to live in nice, prosperous suburbs. But I look at the people who helped build those suburbs and the reasons as to why they didn't get to share in those bounties and, most importantly, the political outcomes of people who did not earn a good enough income to be middle class suburbanites but unless those who ended up living in those very same suburbs. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, uh, Tim Keogh. Uh, his book is published by the University of Chicago Press called In Levittown's Shadow, Poverty in America's Wealthiest Postwar Suburb. He's a history professor at Queensboro Community College of the City University of New York. Well, of course, I just did a little looking up on Wikipedia I found that Levittown isn't actually a town or a village or a a, a city. It's just a, it's just there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really, is just a, a housing development, and all it was at the time was the largest privately developed housing place in America. Um, but it really was just Levitt and Sons, who were the builders. They just bought up a bunch of potato farms, and they could buy up whatever they could grab. And they just plucked a bunch of rapidly developed houses on these places. And then afterwards, people began to kind of create an idea of Levittown and kind of a community from that. But uh, the Levitt and Sons Company, all they cared about was selling homes as quickly as possible. They weren't the only developers of suburban areas on Long Island. No, not at all. They were the largest, and they were kind of the model that many other developers used. Uh, but no, absolutely not. There was Saul Farber, and there was a, dozens of developers. But most weren't able to develop such large subdivisions. Um, and everyone kind of mo- you know looked to the Levitts, and especially their uh, mass assembly modeling uh, you know system of developing as a way to quickly put up homes cheaply and quickly. I remember hearing about Levittown and suburban development. Uh, in uh, in kind of a big voice documentary from the whenever the fifties and the and the sixties about how America is prospering and this is wonderful and in many ways it was wonderful but there were other there were problems there were issues uh, for example again I got this from the Wikipedia the um, uh, Levitts and also I imagine every everybody else who built suburban homes, wouldn't sell them to African-Americans. Yeah, and so, uh, I don't want to say to be fair to Levitt, but Levitt was just uh, adopting a real estate tactic that had existed really since the 1890s, but became kind of nationalized in the 1930s. And that was the idea that, uh, you know, exclusivity, and that means in all its forms, class, and uh, including, of course, race, was a really important feature to keep property values stable and to make uh, the suburban development 
attractive to buyers. And so it became common practice, and in the 1930s became actually federal policy under the Fed, uh, Federal Housing Administration was to include covenants, um, racially restrictive covenants in all house sales. Mm. And so long story short, the Federal Housing Administration insured mortgages. They basically told banks, hey, you can, uh, you know, you can lend out, and if the lender can't pay, or the, 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 you know, the debtor can't pay, and they foreclose, we will bail you out, the bank. So it's kind of a free ride for banks. But the FHA, by taking on the risk, had to basically say, well, we want to make sure houses are built to a certain standard so we don't run the risk of you know, getting all these shoddily built homes, and we want to make sure we limit the foreclosure possibility. And so mm-hmm. racial biases inform that, and so the uh, Levitt and thousands, I mean, almost half of all homes on Long Island in the ni- late 1940s had these racially restrictive covenants that denied anyone but, as they used the racial scientific term, anyone but the Caucasian race to buy mm. these homes. And it's right there, right in every covenant. You can find it, you know, right in the, in the land records. Uh, and Levitt had that included. And, of mm. course, it was controversial because he was such a high-profile builder. And, you know, he's giving it to white veterans, but, of course, black veterans are coming home, and they're denied access mm. to these homes on account of what Levitt believed to be their race. And I gather the elder Levitt said, that, you know, he said, as a Jew, it breaks my heart to do this, but I've got to do it this way. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have a feeling a lot of it was kind of like, it's out of my hands, kind of. You know, he wants to avoid the controversy, right? And obviously shows some appeal to, it is terrible, but I have to do this. Um, and he didn't have to, per se, but he was following what was then standard practice. And it was, he, he the homes are FHA insured, so by standard practice, he was supposed to include this stipulation. So he, he was following the protocol. Um, I don't know if he necessarily, obviously such a prominent person, developer, he probably could have challenged it a bit, no doubt. He chose not to. The other point you make that honestly I never thought of is that the, these suburbanites are moving there, Caucasian people, but who, who built these houses? Who uh, empties the trash? Who does all kinds of menial uh, tasks in Levittown and the other uh, suburbs of Long Island and and elsewhere. Where do they go? Yeah, and so what was surprising to me, and I didn't expect to find this when I began my research, was it turns out they end up living sometimes in those Levittown houses, but they don't get to own them. Instead, they're renting them. And the reality is that these people, as you mentioned, literally sometimes built these homes, or as you said, they took care of the children, took care of sanitation, lawn care, even worked in local factories that helped subsidize the property taxes, you know, for the schools. They couldn't afford to kind of live the middle-class lifestyle, but they nonetheless had to get pro- you know, lived in proximity to places like Levittown. Um, they did it, technically speaking, illegally, or sometimes we call it informally, meaning someone might buy, you know, have a Levitt house, and they rent out their second story, or they might actually move out and just become a landlord and might rent out the home to three or four families. And this actually broke kind of housing and building codes. It wasn't it's not illegal per se, but it doesn't conform to codes. So, but this is the way they made housing for people who couldn't actually qualify for those mortgages. And it caused a quite a bit of political upheaval locally among neighbors, you know, who are dealing with this issue because sometimes a block might have for half the homes are suddenly chopped up and, and sold, you know, and, and multiple people are inhabiting them. Um, and that was against kind of the various kind of rules imposed on those homes. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it is kind of interesting. As you mentioned, you know, there are, we forget, but like 
part of the reason these homes are so cheap was because Levitt avoided union labor. And, you know, construction unions were pretty powerful in New York. And the only way he could do that was trying to hire, essentially, he hired these, he had these subcontractors who hired kind of day laborers uh, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, mid-20th century. And most day laborers were Southern African Americans. Um, so they had them come up and build, and they helped, helped build cheaply. It was very controversial. Some unions tried to strike against him. There's some. Um, he was never indicted, but some of the uh, major union leaders on the island were actually indicted for fraud, accepting bribes from developers. And some people suspect he might have also been bribing, but it was never proven. But long mm. story short, that's part of the reason you're going to have these you know, kind of people who don't earn much money, but nonetheless are really instrumental to help building these homes. And then, of course, they can't afford to live in them, but landlords and others will find ways to, to house them nearby. Mm. It, does this just continue, this practice? Yeah, I mean, it, unfortunately, unfortunately it, it's become ubiquitous. By the 1970s, about one in ten Long Island homes were illegally rented. And by illegally rented, I mean um, the owner isn't living there and they're renting to more than one family. Or the owner is living there, but they're renting to somebody else. Um, most most towns on the island have rules where a single family can occupy a single home. And if there's multiple families and they're not blood-related, it's considered an illegal use of the property, unless you get like a zoning variance and all this kind of legal mumbo-jumbo. But um, And to this day, it's about they estimate about one in ten, sometimes even one in eight or so homes are, are rented this way. Do the poor live in poor quarters? I mean, is this a, a, a given as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it does depend. Uh, but what ends up happening, it tends to be, is that, because again, when I say this informal housing, all sorts of people live in these kind of housing arrangements. You know, I mean, I have friends who even today live in these housing arrangements, and they do well, but they can't, you know, as you know how high housing costs are, they can't get a mortgage. So they end up living in someone's second story, their basement. Um, and they're not, I wouldn't, by any, any definition, they would not be considered poor. However, the poor housing often does end up concentrating in certain places. And unfortunately, given the very um, very heavy use of the homes, they deteriorate very quickly. Uh, and mm. it does become issues, as you mentioned, of, of sanitary, you know, of health and safety. And people do die. I mean, house, house fires, one of the big issues uh, in these post-war Long Island homes is that when you have multiple families but the heating system isn't up to snuff, people start using space heaters. And as you know, space heaters can be incredibly dangerous. And I have stories in my book of, of children, even babies dying of carbon monoxide or being burned alive in their homes on cold winter nights. The original idea, the way it was sold, is that you know, this was going to be the suburbs where people lived a nice life, and they worked elsewhere. They worked in the cities, or maybe down in your case on Long Island, the city, New York, New York City. But the suburbs themselves have developed industries. My story is true for Long Island, but it's kind of true for many parts of the country is that, uh, you know, World War II and especially the Cold War led to this huge growth in suburban industry, particularly on the island's case, it was aerospace, so aircraft and then eventually spacecraft. Um, but Long Island was the only place. Uh, historians call this uh, the gun belt, which kind of runs from Boston's route, uh, I think it's 128, outside of Boston, through Connecticut, down to D.C. and Fairfax County, Virginia. Of course, Florida with its you know, Cape Canaveral and the Space Coast through Texas and, of course, California and up to, you know, Boeing or Seattle. <laughs> um, and this was millions of jobs that were tied to building jets 
missiles, um, planes, and even spacecraft. And so Long Island was heavily concentrated. It had two big companies, the Republic Aviation. They built, for example, probably the most famous plane they built was the uh, P-47 mm-hmm. in World War II. And uh, Grumman, who built the lunar module. Um, and the most famous plane they had built was the F-14 Tomcat, you know, the, the uh, Tom Cruise, you know, Top Gun plane <laughs> jet. Um, um, and, and those are huge employers. I mean, they, though, together they employed about, I have about one in six Islanders. So they, they were the largest employers. And not too far off from what you know Detroit has for, auto, uh, for automobiles, Long Island had locally for aerospace manufacturing. Mm. So, yeah, I know we had that idea of the commuter, and that comes from the early 20th century, definitely. I mean, before World War II, most Long Island suburbanites were commuting into the city. They were white-collar workers. But after World War II, jobs themselves are attracting people out. And Levittown was a major place where a lot of blue-collar workers who worked in the local factories, you know, building airframes uh, for jets and, and planes, that's where they lived. Were there efforts made, uh, you've got a chapter entitled The Suburban War on Poverty. What was that? Yeah, as you may be familiar, or listeners may be familiar, Lyndon Johnson famously declared a war on poverty in 1964 as one of his signature domestic programs, part of his great society. Uh, and that was an effort to eradicate poverty, essentially. That was his I- idealistic idea with a bunch of federal programs, many of which we still have today, you know, Medicaid, Head Start, uh, the food stamp program. Um, but in addition, there were these special programs under the Office of um, Economic Opportunity, which were intended to help train and get, uh, you know, support people across the country the skills and training they would need to kind of get jobs that were they saw as kind of, you know, required certain skills and, and, and technical, you know, ability. And so... Long Islanders, especially the politicians locally in the 60s, who were Demo- a lot of Democrats rode the blue wave following John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson in the 60s. Democrats ended up holding office in, in Nassau and Suffolk counties. And they saw themselves as, hey, you know, if we attach ourselves to this war on poverty program, it'll look great for us. You know, maybe me as a county executive, a guy named Eugene Nickerson, could maybe get to higher office. Eugene Nickerson ran for New York governor several times, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they lashed themselves onto this idea that, hey, we live in the richest place in America, which Nassau County was the richest place in 1960. So if we can lower poverty, you know, we can be an example to the, how a, you know, a prosperous society can alleviate poverty. Um, what they discovered through their efforts was actually quite the opposite. They, they kept doing local programs, and what they discovered is, wait a second, like, you know, we can't, just, no matter what training we do, the jobs available are minimum wage jobs. And so what we're essentially doing is we're training people and they're getting a different job, but it ends up paying that much different than what the job they had before. Mm. And so what they discovered through their efforts was actually Long Island has a lot of low-wage jobs. It doesn't have many high-wage jobs. So we can't necessarily train people out of low-wage jobs into high-wage jobs because those jobs are still very competitive. And mm. so what they ultimately devised um, under Eugene Nickerson was a job guarantee program, which would actually guarantee every county resident a job. <laughs> um, and the argument was, well, we have a lot of elder care. We have people who, you know, the greatest generation are aging and they need help. We don't really have, you know, this is 1960s. Medicare has just passed, so there's not really a great infrastructure for elderly people aside from just getting Social Security checks. The idea was to kind of create elder care, to create daycare programs, public works, um, you know, parks and to help people, you know, have a job that was paid at a good a living wage and every county resident would be guaranteed it. Um, it was an experiment. And unfortunately, when 
Lyndon Johnson left uh, office and Richard Nixon came in, he eventually cut the program. That's kind of mm-hmm. the conclusion they came to in suburbs. Like, oh, we can't solve poverty by just training people. We actually have to provide them work, you know, the, the actual you know, a demand, something for them to do um, as a way to eradicate poverty. And that was kind of the, the outcome, which was surprising. I didn't expect to see that either. They didn't create those jobs, the higher paying jobs. No, they, so they, you know, it was basically like a, like, you know, for the, like the equivalent of the New Deal WPA, the Works Progress. That's what they were modeling it on, uh, the Works Progress Administration, you know, the kind of Roosevelt signature program. And the idea was to create public work. Yeah. And they ended up getting a very small grant under the Nixon administration to experiment with it. And it was successful, but we're talking hundreds of jobs, not thousands of jobs. Um. And, but, and what about those jobs in aerospace, building the airplanes and things like that? Was that yeah, door closed? Cha- yes, yeah, so I had another chapter on. I have a whole other chapter on that. And unfortunately, in the 1960s, the aerospace industry was shifting quite a bit. Uh, it was shifting away from airplanes, in particular, and jets towards spacecraft. Um, and that meant they were actually cutting like blue-collar production jobs, and they were hiring engineers and scientists and aerodynamicists and, and high-end uh, work. So it it was no longer necessarily that kind of open opportunity by the 60s. And for people who had been in those jobs for years, there was internal training that allowed them to move up kind of into the more safe jobs. But if you didn't necessarily get that training or didn't get your foot in the door, those jobs were actually kind of um, narrowing. And after 1969, the Vietnam War began having some cutbacks, and there were major job cuts. Um, And basically throughout the entire 70s, there was no job growth in the aerospace industry. Um, mm-hmm. Reagan briefly created, you know, uh, budget surplus. Uh, you know, in, uh, not budget surplus, but <laughs> the opposite. But uh, spent a lot of money on, on defense, and it did revitalize Long Island's Cold War industry briefly. And of course, then it collapsed in '89 to '91. We're talking with Tim Keogh. He's a, a history professor, author of Levittown's Shadow: Poverty in America's Wealthiest Postwar Suburb. How are things going now? What's the future of uh, the suburbs in Levittown? I was talking to you before the pandemic. I would probably say things continuing to be unequal, and they are. But the pandemic did uh, encourage a whole wave of pe- new people to move out to Long Island and actually, you know, kind of ramp up housing prices. <laughs> and there was a major turnover, a lot of older people moving you know, to Florida and the Carolinas, and a lot of new young families moving in. Which you know would have happened anyway, but it definitely there was a surge in it, and if we saw this throughout the country, where um, the whole move back to the cities, it seems to be at least at the moment, has kind of tempered quite a bit, <laughs> and there's been a rush out to the suburbs again. Mm. However, generally speaking, the trend is happening still. I think by 2040, if the trend continues to hold, like Long Island will no longer be a place where the majority of people live are middle class. It'll actually be split between very wealthy and people who are what we consider like lower income, not not you know, poverty level, but lower income. And that mm-hmm. middle income bracket will no longer be the majority, which has been the case since the early to mid 20th century. You know, as you yeah. mentioned, suburbs are where the middle class live, and it's kind of the symbol of leave it to beaver and everywhere is Raymond and everything else. But it will no longer hold true by 2040 if trends continue. You grew up there. I mean, what, what's your story about living on Long Island in the suburbs, if you did? Yes, I did. <laughs> so as most uh, history, you know, historians and most history books are written, they're written in kind of a self-absorbed way. <laughs> um, I wanted to understand where I grew up and, and why it was the way it was. Um, and 
I grew up here, yeah, on Long Island. My parents are totally typical. They got an FHA loan, you know, low-interest loan that allowed them to buy a first home. It was a three-room bedroom ranch, totally normal house. And I grew up here. And when I went to college, I took a class called Racism in the Modern World. And the professor said, um, it was at Nassau Community College in, uh, in Long Island. And um, the professor said, like, oh, Long Island's considered one of the most segregated places in America. And I was like, what? I just, you know, it shocked me. And of course, driving home from class, it was like, it was obvious. Oh, the professor was completely right. <laughs> like, I see it all around me. And that just sent me down the rabbit hole. Uh, to understand why, and as I kept reading history books on suburbia, some of the elements of what I read were completely true. You know, I understood. We, I grew up in an all-white block. My elementary school was completely white. My high school wasn't, but, you know, that was true. Uh, we were largely middle class. We had good material comfort. We owned two cars. Things were, you know, well. But there were other elements of my upbringing that just were not in those books, and that included the completely abandoned factories I lived all around. They were rotting and and poisoning the, the drinking water. Um, the trailer park that was only two blocks from my house, that never seemed to come up um, in any suburban history. And also a lot of my classmates who ended up going, you know, they had got free uh, subsidized breakfast and lunch at school. And when after school, they'd go home and they didn't go to a single family house. They went upstairs into the attic where their, their family had rented or into a basement. Um, and so therefore, it just didn't align with the stories I had read about prosperous white middle-class suburbanites. It just it seemed like there was another experience that I felt every day growing up, but wasn't reading in the history books. Long Island has its share of rich people. I always, I don't know much about Long Island, I'll be, tell you that. I, when I went to college, I, like one, a couple of my best friends were from Long Island. One guy was from Garden City, I believe, which I think is like regular suburban Long Island. But you get out to where like where, for example, Billy Joel lives out in, at the tip of Long Island and, and takes a, a helicopter to work in New York City. I mean, that's uh, that's wealthy living out there. Oh, yes. Yes, I mean, that's the thing. Long Island has been historically one of the wealthiest places on Earth. You know, before World War II, Long Island had the Gold Coast. I'm sure you're familiar with F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby, which is written about Long Island and very eastern Queens. And you have, you know, you name it, uh, J.P. Morgan, you know, uh, Carnegie, Pratt, uh, you know, all the all the rich guys, the Fords, everyone who was rich had a mansion, a massive mansion on Long Island's North Shore. Um, and then, of course, after World War II, especially by the 70s, the Hamptons, and today, of course, the Hamptons on the very east end, that's where all the billionaires literally live. Um, and that's absolutely true, and that's what makes Long Island such a wealthy place. But a wealthy place doesn't mean everyone, all people are wealthy. And many of these billionaires millionaires rely on a low-wage workforce to help you know, take care of their homes, <laughs> provide them with these services, um, sustain them in different ways. You know, maybe not Billy Joel. Maybe he's rich enough for even the guys he works for him <laughs> do okay. But, you know, if you're not so much then, but you're a doctor, you know, uh, you're, you're – you're, you're, I'm not putting down doctors at all. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, right. to, to help support yourself, you, you, you can't pay you can't pay ten people hundred thousand dollars a year, you know. Um, so it, that low wage system, low wage workforce, is really pivotal today, as it was in 1945, as it was in 1925. Um, it hasn't changed. It's just you know what the rich, how the rich are making their money has changed, um, and therefore the housing stock always has to house these people as. 
an outlander to, let's say, Long, well, specifically Long Island, you know, living upstate, uh, there's a certain amount of tension between upstate and downstate. And one of the things um, that I don't like about Long Island, the few times I go there, is the traffic. It's probably no worse than other places, or, or is it? Uh, so someone who lives here feels worse. <laughs> it feels <laughs> nightmarish. Um, but it is, I mean, I, I can't say for sure whether it's worse. You know, uh, obviously I've heard Washington, D.C. is pretty nightmarish. I was, I got stuck in that traffic this summer. Um, but Long Island is definitely one of the early examples. It was one of the places a lot of stu- heavily studied, right, where you have car, heavy car dependence, right? Um, and, of course, a lot of people moving there. And the solution from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was just build more highways, make them wider. And as we know, that didn't work. It had the opposite effect, where it just encouraged more growth more car ownership, and then those extra lanes just got more and more clogged. Um, so you're absolutely right. The traffic is horrific, um, and partly is because of this. I mean, it's a narrow island, relatively speaking, obviously, and there's only so many through affairs to get out. But just as importantly, the heavy, just almost exclusive dependence on cars, with the exception of the commuter railroads into Penn Station, Manhattan, or downtown Brooklyn, or now Grand Central, everyone has to rely on cars to get everywhere, um, hmm. and you just have two, four million people trying to but, use these few roads. But on the plus side, you've got the ocean uh, pretty close to you. Yes, absolutely, it's, and then that's part of the attraction of these wealthy people. That's why they're there. You know, they're not here, you know, for the pizza or anything else. <laughs> you know, they're here because they can have waterfront property really close to Manhattan, relatively speaking. And they can enjoy that. Tim Keogh, I thank you very much uh, f- for joining us. You, you have a good day. You too. Thanks so much, Bob. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Tim Keogh is author of a book published by the University of Chicago Press in Levittown's Shadow, Poverty in America's Wealthiest Postwar Suburb. Uh, Mr. Keogh is a history professor at Queensborough Community College of the City University of New York. Here we go, another edition of the History Mystery, part of the Historian's Podcast, and we are looming right around number 500, maybe a little bit of explanation that will come in a second or two, but but the mystery for this particular podcast. Question, which of the following is not a suburb of New York City? All right, get get the Google Maps out. <laughs> Levittown. Colony, Garden City, New Rochelle, or Larchmont? We'll have the answer in a second or two, Bob. We now have produced, as Dave said, the number 500 looms large at the Historian's Podcast. We have produced 500 episodes since the podcast began in 2014. This is not number 500, but it's, it's close. Would you be willing to pay one thin dime, 10 cents, for each episode? That would be a one-time donation of $50 to our Historians Podcast Fund Drive. Please contribute that or any amount to Historians Podcast. You can give online. Go to our homepage, bobcudmore.com. Look for the blue button link to our GoFundMe site. Or write out a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore. Send it to 125 Horstman Drive, 
Scotia, New York, 12302. We want to reach our $7,000 goal by the end of the year. Which of the following is our history mystery question? Which of the following is not a suburb of New York City? Levittown, Colony, Garden City, New Rochelle, or Larchmont? The answer is Colony. It's not a suburb of New York City. It's a suburb of New York's capital city, Albany. Our guest today has been Tim Keogh, author of In Levittown's Shadow, Poverty in America's Wealthiest Postwar Suburb. Keogh is a history professor at Queensborough Community College of the City University of New York. The Historian's Podcast is produced by Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore.